Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. From free markets to big tech to politicians, Brian Kaplan offers his thoughts in this episode of Political Economy. Brian is a best-selling author and professor of economics at George Mason University. His latest books are Labor Econ Versus the World and How Evil Are Politicians, the first two volumes of an eight-volume collection of his best essays. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Fantastic to be here, Jim. You're working on a new book, kind of a defense of markets book. Can you tell me the title of that book? Yes, the title of that book is Unbeatable, and the tentative subtitle is The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. Now, there are quite a few books written that are kind of in defense of free markets. What are you trying to add to the conversation? And are you writing it because all the other books have failed? Because it seems like we're going in the wrong direction right now. Yes. The main thing I'm going to add is this psychological concept of social desirability bias and say that it really explains both the world and our failure to persuade. Social desirability bias is the technical name in psychology for the truism that when the truth sounds bad, people lie. And if the lies become pervasive enough, people actually start to believe totally ridiculously absurd stuff. Stuff like, we will do everything possible to give our kids the best possible education. It's like, no, you won't. That would mean that we'd be cutting back on healthcare and food and everything else. You're not really going to do as much as possible, nor should you. It's crazy to do as much as possible because that means that you give zero priority to everything else. Uh, So anyway, there's this idea lurking in the background. And what I say is that once you really take social desirability bias seriously, then you suddenly understand, first of all, a lot more about why markets are great. And second of all, you understand a lot more about why it is so damn hard to sell the greatness of markets. For example, a lot of what is great about markets is convenience. You go to Costco, you just put the stuff in your cart, you go there, you pay them, you leave. Done. All right. But have you ever heard a politician say, I believe that we must make the most convenient country in the world, convenience above all? That never happens. Because convenience doesn't sound good. If you want to get votes, you say safety. We must have safety. We must have health, right? Those are the kinds of things that you say. And yet when you look at people's behavior, you see they care about convenience enormously. Uh, Like a revealed preference? Yes, actions speak louder than words. Absolutely. That is part of what you can really use to test the idea of social desirability bias is to note that there is a big contrast between what people do and what they say they want. And it is best explained, I say, by if what you really want doesn't sound good, then you're not going to admit what you want. You're going to go and come up with some other story. Like in my neighborhood, there was a school that was expanding its parking lot. The neighbors actually just didn't want parking problems, but instead of saying they didn't want parking problems and inconvenience, they said, keep Oakton Road safe. It's like, you're not worried about safety, you're worried about convenience, but you know convenience doesn't sound good, and so you don't say that. But the problem with selling free markets is that a lot of its advantages are things people do not want to explicitly admit they care about, even though we know from the behavior that they care about them a lot. 
right? Uh, think about the way I like to think about it is that markets are great at doing good things that sound bad, and governments are are great at doing bad things that sound good. And once you appreciate those two lessons, you realize, ah, that's what's so great about markets over government. And also, that's why markets keep losing. Because as soon as you admit what's really going on, you'll say, well, that doesn't sound very good. Yeah, I know. Well, a lot of good stuff doesn't. Many people have privacy concerns with big tech companies. And Congress is currently debating potential new privacy rules. But at the same time, most people can't even be bothered to use two-factor authentication. There seems to be a disconnect here. I mean, do people really care about Facebook serving them ads or is it just activists that care about this? Actions speak louder than words. Think about how much business Facebook has lost because of privacy worries versus how much they would lose if they started charging a penny per month for the service. You, you, you could easily see a third of Facebook people canceling their accounts if they were charged a penny a month. And yet, no one is going in Congress and saying that we need to make sure Facebook keeps giving away for free, but someone complains about privacy. And again, it just sounds so much better. I was actually on Tucker Carlson's show right before a Facebook privacy critic. And you probably know the surreal experience when you're in a green room and you're watching the show you're going to be on. And then the person who was just on the show walks in and you're like, wait a second, reality and fantasy are somehow connecting. This doesn't make sense. But anyway, this, this guy's on there going, and I'm going to personal apology for Bill Gates or Zuckerberg because my privacy is violated. And I'm just thinking, like, who in the hell cares? That's their that's your worst problem. You don't have any friend that's depressed. You don't have any relative who's elderly and dying. This is what you're worried about? Like, what are you talking about? You're just a baby trying to get attention for your this ridiculous problem because you know that no one wants to get on TV in public and say, who cares? A lot of what I want to do in Unbeatable is to be that guy saying, I don't care and your actions reveal you don't care either. So your complaints against markets are actually just an attempt to get attention for yourself. They're not an, a serious criticism of markets. And once we really appreciate this, we'll realize how so many criticism of markets should just be summarily dismissed by saying, look, you don't, it's not just me that doesn't care about it. Almost no one cares about it. The critics don't really care about it. It's just something that sounds good where they can go and get attention for themselves. I, I've always said the only thing people really care about with privacy is one, they don't want, they don't want someone to be able to access their like financial accounts and they don't want someone to access their web history. Uh, they want that to be fairly private. Other than that, and those things, people actually take some caution on their own initiative. Right. Yeah. But do they, do they really, do they really care that Facebook or somebody else can serve them an ad? There was a, uh, an Axios reporter who wrote a piece thinking like, a lot of these concerns really seem to be older people concerns. And there are there really that many 20-year-olds worried about ads, you know, what ads are being served to them and that violates their privacy? I mean, my guess is that again, there's two ways to measure it. One is look at what they do, and the other one is look at what look at what they say. So yeah, I think if you ask people, I think the young people will just have a longer list of their weird worries because they understand more what's going on. Like I think you know, like you know, like people in their 80s, if you like, I think they're pretty confused about what information could be gathered. I don't think they have enough understanding to have to uh, to really articulate the complaints. But inter but you know, but again, I don't think the younger people really care much either. It's just the kind of thing that people are encouraged to uh, feel encouraged to talk about. They feel like you'll be sympathetic. You know, like, again, if you go and ask someone, you know, what is your biggest complaint about Facebook? If 
if you complain, you say, well, yeah, I'd like them to pay me a thousand dollars a month to use it. It's like, well, that's not going to happen. Right. Anyway, it just, that doesn't sound very good. And whereas to say, well, they're very leaving my privacy, you know, oh my God, that's must be tough. I mean, this is a problem where if you just explain to people 10 years ago, what people were going to be complaining about, I think there would have been a lot of puzzlement. It's mostly a hurting thing where you want to go and join in with another group of other people all complaining. Let's all kvetch together and then I can get my status up in this group of whiners and belly acres by sharing the complaint and being the more articulate poet of, of, of negativity. You're also working or uh, releasing, I guess, rather, a collection of essays. Mm -hmm. I think you've already released a couple, yeah, yeah. A couple so, volumes. So the plan is for a series of eight of my, you know, so eight books of my very best essays from my 17 years at the blog EconLog. Two are out, and another one will be coming out next month. You've been on the podcast before. The last time you said you'd like to push radical ideas in your books. Are, are, are these books built around certain radical ideas? Yeah, so, so each book is thematic. So the first one, Labor Econ versus the World, is about labor economics with special sections on immigration, on education, on success, right? And then the next book, which has come out and came out in May, is How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. I have been thinking about demagoguery for a long time. I've written a lot of them. So really what I did is I went through 17 years worth of essays and I tried to find the best ones and then organize them thematically. So basically all the ones in this book are on the theme of politicians using rhetoric to gain power, even though the rhetoric itself is intellectually empty and when you really, and when you think about it, it's like, well, let's hope we don't listen to this rhetoric because if we really did, we would be Venezuela. Is the problem politicians, or is is the problem us that we're that we're too easily persuaded by the rhetoric? Uh, with the other book you're doing on free markets, is is the problem really us that we're unable that we refuse to talk about what we really want um, because we're scared about you know what people will say? Does it all come down to sort of a uh, we're too dumb or too frightened or too cowardly to we're to, too, emo uh, too emotional is my too emotional a lot of emoting yes there's a lot of emoting i mean honestly so if a large majority of the population were vulcans mr spock then i think that would basically solve almost all of our political problems very quickly right there's you know it wouldn't be absolute paradise but it would be darn close because no matter how bad a politician was They'd be saying, look, I can't pull anything over on these people. They're just too logical. They're not going to respond to the kind of political rhetoric that humans like. They're going to be reasonable people. Um, you know, that said, part of why I like to talk about demagoguery is just to get people thinking, well, what are politicians doing to you and why are they doing it? So look, there's a, the reason why they talk in this manner. You can just think about politicians that you agree with. If someone talked to you the way that a politician you agrees with at a dinner, you know, like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, how would you feel about it? I think you just feel like, why is this person talking to me in this bizarre manner? If you're like, you're, it's just you and a politician sitting alone, eating a meal, and they say, I promise that I will give us the country's best health care. I promise I will give us the best education. Like, I think almost anyone would say, look, I agree with you what side you're on, but the way you're talking is terrible. This is, it's not honest, like you, you are ignoring trade-offs. It just seems like you are trying to tell me whatever I want to hear in order to get me upset so I do whatever you say. And don't do well, that. Well, well, it sounds like 
we're becoming more like that. I mean, isn't that how people act on Twitter, which they engage with people in a way they would not engage with if they were sitting across the dinner table? Yeah, you would say that a lot of social media is about turning regular people into very low-level politicians where they dodge the real question and then just find some way of twisting someone else's words to make them look bad, right? You know, this, this is the way that almost every Twitter scandal goes where someone writes something in a way that doesn't sound very good, but everybody knows what they're saying, right? So like the Ilya Shapiro, brouhaha, and then people pretend that they didn't understand what he really meant and instead just try to go and have a giant group therapy session with him as the as the demon where we're going to now all say like all of us feel terrible about this don't we yes we all feel terrible about it um so yeah i mean i would say that i mean just to get regular people thinking at one level higher and saying look why are they talking this way well they're talking this way because it gets them elected sure but once you realize that they are the kind of people that talk to people this way to get power doesn't that make you nervous about them doesn't make you really worry there is an essay in the book called could such a man care where i talk about maduro and chavez these guys did not get power by saying, you know, my plan is to destroy this country, to bring it to the ground. Millions will flee this country so that I can rule it. They never gave any speeches of that kind, right? Instead, what did they give? They gave a speech saying, I will care for the poor. I will care for the needy. I will care for every Venezuelan. That's what they said. And yet, what happened? They did the first thing that they didn't say rather than the thing that they said, which is really striking to think about it. Because I say, look, Think about the nicest human being that you know, right? We all have a mental list of people that we know, and we know some people that are super nice. Can you imagine the nicest person that you know going and turning their country into a hellhole where people are fleeing, having huge numbers of political prisoners? Well, so like these, the nicest person I know, like no way would she ever do that. But then to well, realize- And, and could you imagine that kind of person becoming yeah. that of Venezuela? Like what kind of person does it take to make their way, make their way to the top. Yeah, totally true. What's striking is when a Chavez or Maduro is trying to gain power, they act like their heart is ten sizes bigger than ten sizes too big. They talk as if they are the nicest person you ever met, and yet not only are they not. It's not just that you know, Chavez and Maduro were like normally nice people and not super nice, contrary to the rhetoric. Turns out they're the kind of people who'd be happy to let a million people starve to death so they can keep their, their hands on the wheels of power, right? And, and, to, and then to say, okay, well, that happened twice in Venezuela. Yeah, well, how many other times has that happened that someone seized power by talking about how, what a wonderful, caring person they were, and then went and murdered a ton of people, and then say, look, that should make you, make you very nervous anytime someone like that gets a microphone. And yet, basically, every time that happens, there's a lot of people who gullibly say, oh, I think he really cares. I think he really cares. So remember in 1989, I'm a student at Berkeley and some kid saying, Daniel Ortega really cares about his people. I'm sure of it. Oh, yeah, Daniel Ortega, give me a freaking break. <laughs> people who value markets, economic freedom, for, for a while, it seemed like we were really winning. And now, now it kind of feels like we're not winning. Is that just because the media tells me we're not winning? Or is that because of the financial crisis? How do you gauge things, how things are going directionally? Right. So there are, of course, a number of measures of economic policy around the world. And I think that those will tell you that economic freedom in the world probably peaked right before the Great Recession. 
So probably the average of the world got up to the highest it's maybe ever been around 2007 or so. And then since then, things have really deteriorated uh, you know, in the United States, but also in many other countries on earth. Um, I mean, I would say that in terms of rhetoric, yeah, so the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, people are, a lot of people are now too young to even remember that. I was just uh, reading Hedrick Smith's The New Russians, where he recounted the collapse of the Soviet Union. I knew it well, but just to get a refresher on all the details of what really happened, um, it is such a different, it was such a different time than today. That was a time when actually, like every day, there's like amazing good news on the, on, on, like on the newspaper, like another country is abandoning communism, another country is releasing its political prisoners, right? That kind of thing was very normal, and it did persist until about the mid-90s. And then there was a halting and a reversal of most of this progress. Uh, and again, in my mind, mostly for totally bogus reasons. So yes, there's a lot of complaining about shock therapy in the former Soviet bloc. And if you go and read what people like Jeff Sachs said about shock therapy, he said, like, we got a one or two year window to improve policy as much as we're ever going to be able to. And after that, the... Uh, the, the, the former communists will regroup and they will stop progress. So we got to just get, get as much done as we can right now, right here. Right? And yes, of course, when you are shutting down a bunch of industries that take perfectly good timber and turn it into crummy furniture, there's going to be a bunch of people losing their jobs. A lot of that stuff happened in former communist countries. And then in the countries that allowed it, the wonder of the market worked and labor was reallocated to productive uses doesn't happen in a week, but it happens over the course of a few years. And now we can take a look and we can see the countries in the former Soviet bloc that did shock therapy, that reformed as much as, as you could get through the system in a short time. Those are the freest, best, richest countries. And the countries that said, let's really make sure that we're doing this the right way. Let's make sure no one suffers. Those are the countries like Belarus or Ukraine, honestly, that barely reformed at all. What is the direction in the United States? We're supposed to be the leader. We're no one's supposed to value free markets the way we do, with maybe the exception of uh, some, you know, micro of Hong Kong. But the Hong Kong sort of no longer exists. Yes, As, you know, Singapore. I mean, you know, honestly, there's you know, like some other countries that we think of as being less free market that maybe maybe are more. Canada has done so much better than us fiscally that if you put a reasonable amount of weight on that, then their socialized medicine actually is probably less important than just not getting into ridiculous budget deficits. Although I don't know what Canada did during COVID. So you always have to have the asterisk of as of 2019. And then what happened during COVID? Gee, it's still pretty confusing what occurred. But anyway, what I would say is probably free markets peaked in the US under Clinton with welfare reform. And that was the last really big victory for free market policy at the federal level anyway. Uh, states, it's more complicated. There's always some states that are moving in a better direction, although a bunch of other states moving in a worse direction. Yeah, and then I think we've had about 25 years where things have either stayed the same or gotten worse for US domestic policy. By the way, my say this, I'm not a generally nostalgic person. I am someone that is very eager to tell my kids all the ways that things are way better now than when I was a kid. But I'll also say, yeah, but you know, things are way better economically, way better technologically, but they are worse politically and in terms of economic policy. And I said, well, isn't economic policy cause those things? Yeah, well, economic policy can get a lot worse without just destroying the engine of progress completely. But I think things would have progressed further if we had stuck to our guns. Um, yeah, and you know, that's one where, of course, you know, Democrats are normally on the forefront. 
but there's so much what used to be called me to, me tooism among Republicans, not uh, the me too of sexual harassment, but the me tooism of I also want to have bigger government. Don't get me wrong. So uh, you feel like you're going to be spending like, you know, the the I'm not going to say the, the final stage of your career, but say the next the next stage of your career just constantly playing defense. Is that what I mean? What do you think the next twenty years looks like? Just sort of worse and you just and you try to make make your case hoping at some point it'll there'll be a window of opportunity and for people will figure it out and it means yeah, so, again so in, intellectually i always play offense <laughs> right i mean so part of part of it is just that it's boring and not fun to be playing defense partly is i think that the case for defense is already made so i want to make the case for offense yeah, so in unbeatable, like I said, I'm going to be fending things that people think are crazy, but I'll say, no, they're not crazy. And abolishing Social Security is a good idea. It might be really politically unpopular, but the arguments are on its side. And I will go into those arguments. I'm going to talk about selling off the over 30% of the land of America owned by federal and state governments. Things that people say, look, you can't do that. Like, yes, we definitely can. It's not hard. Let's go for it. Um, in terms of what's actually going to be happening over the next 20 years, I just want to quote Yoda here. You know, Ever in flux is the future. Ever in flux the future is. So on the one hand, it's very easy for me to believe that things just keep going in the direction they've been going. And the free, you know, what was the free market wing of the Republican Party just sort of disappears in a what we call like you know, in, the, in the forge of nationalism and you just take the perfectly good free market pots and pans and melt them down into sludge, right? Like uh, Mao had China do during the Great Leap Forward. You're like, hey, we need more pig iron. All right, let's take our pots and pans and melt them down into a pile of goo. Sounds great. Um, on the other hand, honestly, during the last few years, I say, contrary to a lot of people, that Republicans have shocked me by how free market and in general libertarian they've been. I was actually stunned that there was a very aggressive Republican reaction to COVID tyranny when the Republicans initially supported all the same policies that all that all the other that Democrats were supporting. I was thinking, oh, man, it's just going to be bipartisan tyranny as far as the eye can see. And I was just totally wrong about that. Within six weeks, there are a number of Republican states that are opening up to a very high degree, despite enormous pressure. Right. And also, apparently, against public opinion at first, although this is one where people like DeSantis were entrepreneurial, and I think they thought, look, public is against it now, but once they see what, it, what that we can reopen the state and get life back to normal and we don't have a million people die, people will, in hindsight, be glad we did it. So that's the sort of the entrepreneurial version of the median voter theorem, where you give the voter what he's going to want after he sees what it does. I'd say, I mean, I spent a lot of COVID living in Texas where I could just see, wow, this state does something, does things very differently than my home state of Virginia. So I was actually very impressed that that happened. With DeSantis, it's really impressive because that guy won his last election by a hair. Yeah. <laughs> so this is not a guy who could just say, I'm in a safe state. I do whatever I want. I mean, it's, it really took a, a lot of courage and willingness to say, I, I, as, to, as to whether he was that foresighted about what would happen or whether he was just that ideological or, or what, I don't know. And the same thing goes for all of the Republican pushback to left-wing brainwashing going on at schools and universities. I mean, this is something that now seems to be a top issue. Um, it's, 
I would say that complaining about immigration, where I am very against the usual Republican view, it's probably fallen about 95% since 2016, right? You know, if Republicans just stick to I'm against COVID tyranny and I'm against having left-wing brainwashing in, at all levels of our society. So, all right, wow, right, that's, that's really cool. And then once, you, once you're there, that's where I do think there is this wedge to say, all right, well, once we're doing this, what could we, like, like there's complaining about it, there's doing something about it, what could actually be done? Um, again, we are actually seeing Republicans really sticking their necks out for school choice in places like Arizona, which is obviously a lot, a lot of that is motivated by the desire to get your kids out of schools where they are subject to ridiculous left-wing brainwashing and put them in a school where you agree with what they're teaching your kids, right? Uh, and then, you know, similarly on the push for, you know, especially you know, for, you know, for, for racial quotas at major businesses, you know, of course, there's the idea of, well, this is just woke capital. I mean, a lot of this is businesses saying, well, look, I don't want to be the business that most obviously is doing the least about discrimination. I don't want to stand out as this is the business where they are the least aggressive about it. And that ultimately does come down to they're worried about getting sued. They don't want to stand out as doing less because that'll come up in a trial. And to come up with ways of watering down the discrimination laws, which have gotten to the point where people literally live in terror of doing or saying anything that anyone might call discrimination. Uh, my very mild proposal here, my modest proposal is just to create a free speech exception to discrimination law saying that you cannot sue an employer because an employee said something that was offensive to you, right? So just to list, like, like it is categorically allowed for any employee to say, you know, to make any political statement he wants, including a racist or sexist statement. You need to have that in there specifically to say there's no exception for this stuff because as we know, the categories of racism and sexism have become so elastic that almost anything could count now. So if you don't go and really hammer that down, then I think that free speech on the job is basically over, right? Um, you know, similarly for sexual discrimination, you know, when discrimination laws were first passed, if you told them this is, event, this is going to end workplace dating, I think people would have just said you're being paranoid. That's what the laws have done, right? They have made people so paranoid about being accused of sexual harassment that people are afraid to date coworkers. Like they're two adults, like you can say no, like why should this be something that the law is involved in? And yet it totally is. So you know, if we could just chip away at the legality of making overbroad discrimination accusations, I think that would be a really big deal. Brian, good luck with the books. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right, thank you. And by the way, so the next book in the series is gonna be called Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice. This is the one book that's going to start with an all new essay. It's called Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. And this is the one where I spent a lot of time thinking, what am I, how am I going to explain what I think about feminism in our society to my 10 year old daughter? Uh, she's not quite old enough to read it, but I said, like, uh, the day you ask me and you're ready to read it, I want the book to be there and I just want to be able to hand it to you. So that's the first thing that I address. And the rest of the book talks about what I call the social injustice movement that has taken on such a prominent role in our society. Awesome. Hey, thanks again. Thank you.